0: Will you please stand and pray with me? Father, we're deeply grateful this morning as we come to you, uh, come to be fed through your word and around your table. And Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit to sustain us through word and sacrament, that he would apply to us the good grace that you give to us in your son, Jesus Christ, and open up our ears to, open up our ears to hear from your word what you desire for us to learn. And Lord, give us the grace that we need to have it take root and to bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for your kingdom in the months and days ahead of us. We lift ourselves to you, to your love and care. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, good good morning. Glad to see you here on this Fourth of July weekend. It's good for you to be here. Turn with me, if you would, to our New Testament lesson from... St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, Paul writes this letter to a church that is in the midst of division. This is a deeply divided church. And this fact alone ought to make us pay attention because the church in America, within and across denominational boundaries, is likewise plagued with division. So if Paul's addressing division and we find in our midst I I think God's pretty much spared our church in this moment from that, but we see it all around us. We want to pay attention. What does Paul have to say that might be an anecdote, an antidote for division? And indeed, our lesson this morning, Paul offers us such an antidote for division within the church, and especially within a local church. But before we look at this antidote to division, let's set our reading within the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, to this particular church. The division in the church here arose from a distortion of the gospel, a, distorted, a distortion of the true gospel. The, the good news that's revealed in Jesus was being twisted. It was being malformed in this church. And at the core of this false gospel, at the core of this distortion, stood a lie about the law of Moses and, its, and how it relates between us and God, how it serves in our relationship with God. And here's that lie, here's that false claim that Paul confronts in this letter. That the law of Moses, the law of Moses, is a system of merit. Now that's this is the false claim. The law of Moses is a system of merit whereby we can earn favor and status with God. Okay? We might sometimes call this legalism. However, we say it. The, the point is, is that they were viewing the false gospel, this anti-gospel, does that work in, in Galatia? It was viewing the the law of God, as a means of earning favor with God, as a means of gaining status, whether that was through the food laws, like you can eat this, but you can't eat that, or whether it was through circumcision or whatever it might be, they were treating the law as something that it was not. And, and Paul even tells them in the next ver- in verses of 15 through 16, 17, that the law was never meant to justify you before God. Only Jesus. Justification only comes through Jesus Christ. So this lie, this anti-gospel distortion, was dividing the church wherever it popped up. And we see it referenced in several letters throughout Paul's writings and others. And particularly, Paul gives us a glimpse of what this division looks like in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Just listen to those. If you have the scriptures, you can turn there and read along as well. But when Cephas, now that's the apostle Peter, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul got up in his face. I mean, that would have been a very interesting church uh, gathering. Um, But Paul got up in Peter's face. I, I opposed him. I stood up into his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's this group that's come from Jerusalem. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, this is important, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, right? Before these folks come, he was eating with the Gentiles. Likely he was enjoying pulled pork, Eastern, sorry folks, Eastern North Carolina style. But I'm sure that's what was happening. He was enjoying that. So P- Paul is saying, Peter, if you, who, who's a Jew by birth, are living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force now Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, false teachers identified here as a circumcision party had entered the church claiming that the law of Moses was indeed a system of merit. Depending on what you ate, depending on what it may have been done to you as a child or as an adult, you could be Favored by God in a special way, or you would have a special status or standing with God. This is a distortion of the truth of the gospel, and this particular distortion is generated by what Paul calls the flesh that is, our fallen, wicked, and twisted human desires, right? Often good desires that God has given us, but misguided, placed in the wrong direction, twisted desires, wicked and fallen desires. And we know that the flesh is generating this because it's producing the works of the flesh in the midst of the body, in the midst of the church. And in Galatians 5, 19-20, Paul gives us a representative list of these works of the flesh. And this anti-gospel message that Paul confronts in Galatia appears to be evidencing some of these. Such as enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Dissensions, divisions, and envy. I mean, just imagine with me, if we had on the lawn, like we did a few uh, month and a half ago, a church potluck, and we divided ourselves according to people who had certain status, based maybe based upon their birth, maybe based upon their skin color, maybe based upon some religious rite they had gone through, based upon whatever, maybe how holy they had demonstrated themselves to be, and we separated our congregation out like that. Some of us wouldn't eat with others because by no means would we eat with them. They're unholy. Can you imagine what would be, one, who would want to come to that? Two, can you imagine fits of anger, jealousy, envy, strife, division? All these things would be present in the midst of that church. These works of the flesh were certainly present there in Galatia as they were in the church of Antioch. When this false gospel, this anti-gospel comes, division is in their midst. This list of works of the flesh could easily now be just placed upon our current context, the church in America. We easily fall into this fits of rage. I I, I don't know about you, but has anyone seen a fit of rage? (laughs) Some people, I've seen it on both sides, as we typically think, left and right. We see it. We see all kinds of divisions in our midst in this church, not only, well, not in our church. I think God has saved us by and large from this, and thank him for that. But in the church more broadly here in, in, the, in the America, we see that kind of division happening all the time. And we really can thank God, and we should praise God, even today in our service, that God has spared us from that. But we also should keep in mind that we are not immune from such division. Whether it's arising from a false gospel and the works of the flesh, or whether it's the works of the flesh in the midst of our congregation that's producing division, rivalries, fits of anger, we must keep our hearts and our minds chaste. And so we must heed Paul's admonitions here in our lesson from Galatians 5, verses 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. And we must see these admonitions as the antidote to the works of the flesh that profoundly divide the church and profoundly hold us in bondage to our twisted desires. Our lesson here comes on the heels of Paul's description in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, this is what was read for us last week. It comes on the heels of Paul's description of the Christian conflict between the flesh and the spirit. A conflict that is is that that is raging in each of us and in our churches, right? That's just a part on this side of the new creation. That's a part of life, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul also there describes the way of victory. And that way of victory is through crucifying the flesh and walking by the Spirit. Indeed, this gives us the general, the general answer to division within the church. Simply stated, crucify the flesh, walk in step with the Spirit. That's how we can avoid division. Yet Paul doesn't leave the Galatian church, and we're not left this morning with just a general prescription, some kind of general antidote. No, Paul takes it two steps further. The first is that he gives a more defined admonition a more defined admonition in galatians chapter 6 verse 2 you can see it there bear one another's burdens bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ this admonition to bear one another's burdens is more spe- is the more specific spirit led that's important this is assuming what well, we came before that we are following the spirit if if indeed you are walking by the spirit let us What? Walk in step with the Spirit. So this is indeed a more specific Spirit-led antidote for division within the church because, and this is important as well, because it calls us to relate to one another on the basis of the law of Christ. To relate to one another on the basis of the law of Christ, not on the basis of the law of Moses, and certainly not on the basis of the law of Moses, seen as a system of merit, of earning favor with God. What is the law of Christ, then, we should ask? Well, you might remember that Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 31, a new commandment, a new law I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then not surprisingly, Paul, in our context, in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 14, declares, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Freedom from the law is a system of merit. You're called a freedom. Now, don't use that freedom, he says, only do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't allow that freedom to be an excuse to gratify the twisted desires of the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So bearing one another's burdens then fulfills Jesus' command to love as he has loved us and such love Such burden-bearing love abolishes flesh-generated divisions, abolishes flesh-generated divisions. Yet Paul doesn't even leave us there. We might say, well, that's pretty specific. That's specific enough. Paul gets even more specific. He takes us one step further by providing us with a startling example of this burden-bearing love. Just look there at verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers, and, and, and by that he means brothers and sisters, if anyone is called in any transgression, right, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, now that's every single one of you, if you indeed you are filled with the Spirit of God through faith, repentance, and baptism, you are a spiritual person, right? Led by the Spirit. If anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And this is where we begin to recoil bit, is it not? I'm like, oh, okay. I really I really like that burden-bearing things when it's the practical burden-bearing of life. Maybe I need some financial help. I'm I'm I, bring it on, you know, bring your burden-bearing love to me. I'm will, willing to receive that. Whether we might be struggling with anxiety or depression, we need somebody to encourage us in that moment. You know, those practical, the practical help, the practical burden-bearing we love. And Paul knows that, he knows that. The difficult one to receive is when we're called in transgression and burden bearing is called to come alongside of us to tell us that and to lead us towards restoration. That's a difficult burden bearing love to receive. That's a difficult burden bearing love to give. But this is what Paul gives us, this startling example. Our gut level reaction to this, this type of burden bearing love though is is often to dismiss it as either judgmental or unloving? Judgmental or unloving? Who are you? This is may, might be some, a response we might give, or one we might have heard. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me about my sin? What about your sin? Who are you to tell me? Or we may see a brother or sister uh, in Christ called in a transgression, and we remain silent. We acquiesce to it, because we're telling ourselves, who am I? Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge them? And in both cases, we quickly quote Jesus' statement from Matthew 7. Judge not lest you be judged. The most abused passage in all of scripture. am well, not the most abused, but highly abused. Judge not lest you be judged. And there is a cultural assumption at work in this. That it is pervasive among Christians that no one, here's the assumption, that no one should ever tell me or define for me what is right or wrong. That's personal. That's between me and God. What right do you have? That's the kind of gut-level reaction that we all have at some point in our lives, that we know is at at work. Now, I know this is pervasive among Christians. One, because I frequently hear it. I frequently hear it in conversation and maybe through social media. But then also, every 10 weeks, I teach a class on biblical ethics at a Christian university, and I hear it from my students. At least 50% or more of my students, when they're given an assignment with a sensitive, sensitive, cultural ethical issue and they're asked to weigh that according to scripture whether or not it's morally right or wrong i will have 50 or more percent of my students tell me i'm not taking a position i'm like well what are you talking about that's the position that, that's the f no that's the paper take a position the point is to take a but they will not take a position and they state this i don't want to judge I don't want to judge, I don't want to judge, I don't want to be un, uh, un, unloving. And that desire not to judge and, to be, and not to be unloving is a good desire, but it's misapplied here. So we have to ask, we have to ask, is there a conflict, is there a conflict between Jesus' injunction not to judge, which is good for us not to judge, that's what Jesus says, is theres is there a conflict between that injunction from Jesus and Paul's admonition to burden bearing love that gently, gently confronts a brother or sister caught in a transgression with the intention of restoring them. Is there a conflict here? Well, I'll give you the easy upfront answer uh, without qualification, no. No, there is no conflict between these two things. And the key to this answer is that judgmentalism, what Jesus is is referencing in Matthew 7, that judgmentalism arises from conceit, self-conceit. Self-aggrandizement, you know, the pride, hubris, however you want to describe it, uppishness, uppishness, is that a word? I think it is, uppishness, uppityness, you know, so all these things with conceit. So the key to this answer is that judgmentalism arises from conceit and burden-bearing love is motivated by humble self-giving, by a humble self-giving sacrifice that is in accordance with the law of Christ, with the cross-shaped nature of Jesus' love. Self-conceit materializes as a prideful lack of self-awareness, a prideful lack of self-awareness. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 7 when he says that take the log out of your own eye, right? He doesn't say not to look at your brother, but so that you can see the speck in your brother's eye. But first, you have to have some self-awareness. You have to know that you're walking around with a log in your eye and be able to take that out first, So Jesus is addressing this prideful lack of self-awareness, how that self-conceit can materialize as. Now often, this prideful lack of self-awareness also results in an attempt to elevate ourselves or oneself over others. And there's a beautiful example, beautiful is probably not the right word, there's a good example of this in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says that there were uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector were walking into the temple, both to offer their prayers to God, And the Pharisee actually records his prayer, and he says, God, oh God, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Praise God. Not an extortioner, not unjust, not a corrupt person, and I'm certainly not like this guy, this tax collector. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That is conceit that materializes itself and one, a lack of self-awareness, prideful lack of self-awareness, and two, an elevation, an elevating of oneself over others. And you know what that causes in the midst of the church when that happens? Division, envy, strife, fits of anger. I mean, I think I, if I was a tax collector, I'd be pretty angry. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how I would respond. I don't know how you would respond. It would be it would be quite the th- quite the sight to see, but. Uh, It causes this type of division. And we can pray that God saves us from that, because this judgmentalism here that Jesus condemns in Matthew 7 and that the Pharisee embodies arises from prideful conceit, prideful self-conceit. And this is exactly the fleshly vice that Paul identifies, that Paul identifies which will destroy a church with division. Just look there at Galatians 5, 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's one side. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Notice the opposition. Spirit versus conceit. Burden-bearing love, we can say, versus judgmentalism. Others focused versus self-focused. Self-giving versus self-seeking. For Paul... For Paul, if we desire to walk in the Spirit, which is what that entire chapter 5 is about, if we desire to walk in the Spirit, then we must crucify conceit. We must crucify self-importance. We must crucify pride. We must crucify self-love. That's a hard one. I mean, I can remember, was it was a decade ago, when all those like weight loss shows were on, and the, the, the mantra was, you got to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Nothing could be more conceited. Love yourself before you love anyone else. We have to crucify these forms of conceit in our lives so that we might produce the fruit of the Spirit, love. Burden-bearing love in the midst of Christ's people and in the midst of this world, and that will proclaim... I will proclaim the glory of God and the presence of his kingdom on earth right now in the midst of craziness, in the midst of the mess the church finds itself in, in the midst of the mess that our world finds itself in. So what about burden-bearing love makes it an antidote to community-dividing conceit? Well, there's just two characteristics I want to highlight as we, as we conclude today. There's two characteristics of it that I think we, we need to grasp. So we're not going to get into how we confront one another when we, when we catch someone in sin this morning. Because the first thing that has to happen is we have to look inside. We, like Jesus, we have to be able to pull, pull the log out of our own eye. We have to be able to look at ourselves first before we can even get on at confronting in love and gentleness a brother or a sister who is caught in a transgression. Or even be willing to receive that kind of correction from others. Two characteristics. The first one is that burden-bearing love is cross-shaped love. It is defined by the cross of Christ. And so this challenges us every day, morning, noon, day, and evening, to remember the way of the cross, remember the crucified Christ, for he gives of himself freely for us. Likewise, we are to give ourselves freely for others. He, though in the form of God, did not consider that status something to be taken advantage of he wasn't conceited but humbled himself becoming a human becoming a servant dying a cursed death so that we might enjoy the love and goodness and restoration of god and then god exalts him high above every other name that's the pathway towards life and flourishing that's the that's the anecdote to division is remember the cross, remember the crucified Christ. He is the ultimate burden bearer. And if we truly focus our hearts and minds on the crucified Christ, his humility, his sacrifice, and his love, we will resist thinking too highly of ourselves. And instead, we will quickly realize that none, none is righteous. No, not one, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3. So contemplate the full scope of our Savior's ministry contemplate the full scope of our savior's ministry and it will be a rem- and it will serve a remarkable function in your life to subdue if not eradicate self-conceit in our hearts that second characteristic so the first characteristic was burden-bearing love is cross-shaped love that second characteristic is that burden-bearing love is self-aware and humble self-aware and humble Paul says in verse verse 1, Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And he says in verses 3 and 4, For if anyone thinks he is something, right that's what conceit does, thinks that you're something, when he is nothing, Paul reminds us that in reference to Christ, in reference to this world, you are nothing. No, if you, if you think he is something and you are nothing, when he, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Of course, when he is saying, you are nothing. He's not mean that you are a worthless pile of, uh, you know, cells and blood and water and things like that. No. You are worthy. You are valuable because God has made you in his image and Christ has redeemed you. His blood was shed for you and on your behalf. So you are ultimately worthy. But what Paul is saying here is that when you think more highly of yourself than you ought and really come to find out that you're not anywhere close to that image of yourself, Right. You've deceived yourself. You're no longer you're no longer self-aware. You're deceiving yourself. You're holding yourself in one sense captive to your own fleshly desires. Okay, that's that's what so I don't don't hear me say, don't hear Paul say that you're worthless a nothing, even though I'm going to say that. That's not what it's meant. It's more like the hyperbole here. Okay, so we understand that, hopefully. We are often, though, prone, as Paul says here, to deceiving ourselves, are we not? We're often prone to deceiving ourselves. And so Paul requires us to keep watch, to be diligent, diligently self-aware, to test ourselves, right? If we need to have a community that is spirit-filled and spirit-led, and a mark of that, it's interesting, Paul does not say that that community is going to have some mystical experience. He says that community is going to have spiritual people who confront one another when they're caught in transgression. And the ultimate reason is so that when you come to verse 5, and each one of us has to stand before God, when each one of us has to stand before God with our own load, Paul says, right, when the judgment day, we can do that. This community right here, led by the Spirit of God, helps one another crucify the flesh in our hearts and our lives, so that when we come before the judgment seat of God one day, we can stand and carry our own load. That's what the community does. That's what the free grace of God does in our hearts and lives. It prepares us to stand before God. Not to be judged whether we go to heaven or hell at this point because we are baptized followers of Jesus Christ. But Paul does say there is a judgment for us. There is a judgment for us where our works will be judged. Whether we'll have wood, hay, or stubble. right, Works that burn up. Or whether we'll have works that are refined. Silver, gold. We can offer those to our God as tribute and as thanksgiving in this life. And so we need to have a self-awareness, a humble self-awareness. And so when we focus our hearts and our minds on the crucified Jesus and we keep watch on ourselves, then we develop a self-aware humility that resists conceit. When we compare ourselves not to one another, not to one another, but to the crucified Christ, we begin to see our true place in this world. We begin to humble ourselves before his glory when we come to see our God as the creator of all that is as the creator of our own bodies our own selves we begin to humble ourselves not only in relationship to God but in relationship to one another and this self-aware humility is difficult for us because in our culture we're addicted to self-esteem addicted to self-esteem. Modern American society believes that people, when people misbehave, they do so because there's a lack of self-esteem. For example, it's common to think that a person, uh, that a reason for people who are abusive or a reason for that people are criminals or a reason that people are drug addicted is because they have too low a view of themselves. And this view is deeply rooted and pervasive in things from our education sh- system to therapy to criminal justice to approaches to parenting, and the list can go on and on. And one of the reasons it's so this perspective is so pervasive is because, I mean, just quite frankly, it's attractive, right? If the only thing we need to do is tell people just to just encourage them to be better, be better, be a better person. You're great. You're wonderful. You're so wonderful. Be better. That's very attractive because it's easy. You see, low, the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior means I don't have to make any moral decisions in order to deal with problems in our church. Right? In our church, in society, I don't have to make any decisions. And this feeds right into our desire not to be judgmental. All you have to do is to support people and build up their self-esteem. And again, I'm not saying that we don't need to encourage people appropriately as people made in the image of God and loved by Christ for whom Christ died. But this goes too far. And it actually feeds into our desire not to judge, not to be Unloving. But self-aware humility, defined by the crucified Christ, looks at all this from a very different perspective. And we're going to close with this. Let me explain this briefly by what C.S. Lewis describes, the way he describes pride and conceit. This is in Mere Christianity. He says, there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. No fault which makes a man more unpopular. No fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride and conceit. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And we can also say the more we have it in ourselves, the less we see it in ourselves. Right? And the Psalm 36 gives us the appropriate perspective of this, verses 1 and 2. tells us how this happens, how we become so blind to, to the conceit in our own hearts. Transgression, sin, speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no God. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, and his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Sin deceives us, can can deceive us in such a way that we do not even see that it is in our eye to be pulled out, to be despised, hated, and be crucified so that we might have true life and so that we might have unity in the midst of the body of Christ. Sin speaks to us. It flatters us. It convinces us that we are something we're not. Less vile, less vain, less self-centered, more patient, more faithful, more gracious than we really are. Christ Church, that sounds pretty bleak. (laughs) But this is the good news of the gospel that Paul declares to the Galatian church: you are justified in Christ. You are justified in Christ. You are clothed with his righteousness. You are made something, not by comparing yourself to others, but he makes you something you are not by nature. He makes you that through repentance, and through the waters of baptism, and through the work of the Spirit in your life, day in and day out. He makes you into a person who embodies his burden-bearing love in the midst of his people. Pray to God. Pray to God that he will do that work, crucifying conceit in your own heart and nurturing in you burden-bearing love. And we'll close with this. as a takeaway. Memorize the last two verses of Psalm 139. That's homework. Memorize the last two verses of Psalm 139 and say this to yourself. Pray this daily. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Look well if there be any wickedness in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting. God desires to do that for you. Pray that he does that in you, and submit to it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.